Hi, I'm Monica. And I'm Emma. Welcome to Fanfare. Before we get into the show, can we make a brief detour into my closet? Always. Well, we've talked about this before, Emma, but fashion is like cooking. What? No. Well, yes, it all comes down to the ingredients. Oh. Yeah. When your essentials are solid, you don't have to own a zillion things. Nor should we aspire to, for obvious reasons. You don't need to have both sweet and hot paprika? Is that what you're trying to tell me? I don't think you do. And that's why I'm so excited that our sponsor for season three is Cezanne, a sustainable Parisian brand that nails the essentials. And this at a surprisingly accessible price point, given their commitments to quality and to eco-friendly business practices. Mm, They're a B Corp, aren't they? They are. Visit sezane.com to see what I mean. Midway upon the journey of our life. Wait a minute. Midway for both of us? I mean, I know you're 35, but... Midway in the biblical sense. In the biblical sense. Oh, dear. Do you find yourself within a forest dark, Mon? Has the straightforward pathway been lost again? Ah, me. How hard a thing it is to recite a hundred canto poem when you keep cutting me off in this manner. (laughs) Speak, will you, of the other things you saw there? I'm going to be honest, I saw some pretty weird stuff there. Oh, me too. Really weird. I've read some gory poems in my day, but this is probably the most graphic. It is not one to read out loud to the kiddos, unless they're being very, very naughty. Right. (laughs) Not a comedia in the rom-comedia sense, is it? Although it is rather romantic in a way, isn't it? Hmm. Welcome to season three of Fanfare, in which cultural luminaries invite their dream guests to dinner. In case, listener, you have not yet crossed the river of blood that boils souls, we are talking about the comedy, the one by Dante Alighieri, which didn't start getting called divine until after the poet's death. Fun fact. Yeah, we know him as Dante, one name, Rihanna style, but today's imaginary dinner guest was probably baptized... Durante di Alighiero degli Alighieri. Ooh, nice. And as you have just heard, kind of, the opening lines of the Inferno, which is the first of the comedy's three canticles, begins midway upon the journey of our life. Dante was born in Florence in 1265. He sets the poem in the year 1300, though he started writing it in 1307, probably in part because in 1300 he was 35. Our age. Your age. Yes, uh, (laughs) listener, Emma is 34, which she'd really like you to know. AKA, halfway through the biblically ordained lifespan, which was four score and 10 or 70. So the Divine Comedy is arguably the most culturally impactful midlife crisis of all time. Dante, who was very well educated and came from a prominent Florentine family, had taught himself to write poetry by the time he was 18, as he says himself in the Vita Nuova, which is widely considered to be his first masterpiece. He sent one of his early sonnets, I love this, to a bunch of the day's best as one known does. poets, uh, as, we all, <laughs> as we all do. Um, and one of those who responded was apparently Guido Cavalcanti who became a friend, but whom Dante was later a part of a decision to exile when Dante had become one of the priors of Florence. As well as attaining early success as a poet, Dante fought as a cavalryman and served in various civic and diplomatic positions. 
Cavalcanti, who actually appears in Inferno, uh, as you may remember, died in exile in the year 1300. A bit of foreshadowing for our hero. Like many Florentines of his day, Dante was embroiled in the Guelph-Ghibelline conflict, which arose from factions in northern Italy supporting the Pope versus the Holy Roman Emperor. Mon, would you mind enlightening us, please? Yeah, it was kind of like a posh noble gang warfare situation. Dante was among the supporters of the White Guelphs, who had some major beef with the Black Guelphs, who his in-laws happened to be allied with. So he's not the kind of guy to get influenced by his father-in-law. And in 1302, when the Black Guelphs took over Florence, they were like, bye. And Dante was exiled, never to return to Florence, never to see his wife and family ever again. Dante's Divine Comedy is widely considered to be one of the most important poems, not only of midlife, but of the Middle Ages. And, so say some, among the greatest literary works in the Italian language. These kudos are largely because he is known for establishing the use of the vernacular in literature at a time when most poetry was written in Latin, which of course would have only been accessible to educated readers. His use of mostly Tuscan dialect for the Divine Comedy helped establish the modern-day standardized Italian language, and his work set a precedent that important Italian writers such as Petrarch and Boccaccio would later follow. Allegorically, the poem represents the soul's journey toward God, beginning with the recognition and rejection of sin, inferno, followed by the penitent Christian life, purgatorio, and then the soul's ascent to God, paradiso. This journey can inspire and be interpreted in many ways in modern times, as evidenced by the work of our real-life guest today, Allegheny Jewelry founder Rosh Matani. Rosh spent her early childhood in Zambia, where her parents grew up. She says she spent her days creating imaginary universes with her little brother, collecting stones, leaves, and shells, and imbuing them with magical powers. Moving to London age eight, Rosh says she found herself searching for her place in the world. She continued her education in London and went on to study French and Italian at Oxford University, where she became fascinated with Dante, and would eventually seek to weave together her love of magical objects with the Italian poet's tale of being lost and uncertain, which she so related to. In 2014, Roche began to carve one piece of jewelry for each canto of the Divine Comedy. She says her lack of formal training as a jeweler allowed her to access a certain freedom and forge her own language of imperfect textures to bring her strength and courage on life's little adventures. And she was certainly onto something. Roche is what I'd call a multi-platinum bijoutier in the fashion industry, widely respected and beloved for her unique approach to design. She really is. I mean, people cannot get enough of her. I'm wearing her earrings right now. I'm wearing her necklace. In 2020, she was the first jewelry designer to be given the Queen Elizabeth II Award for British Design, which recognizes designers with exceptional talent and originality, as well as strong community values and sustainable practices. The British Fashion Council's chief executive, Carolyn Rush, told Vogue she was incredibly proud of Rush, who has, quote, managed to translate her passion for jewelry and storytelling into a highly successful business while using responsibly sourced material. Her ethical approach and commitment to local manufacturing, combined with her ability to make beautiful, timeless, made-by-hand jewelry, makes her an inspiration for many young designers. Welcome, Rosh. We are so delighted to have you. 
Thank you so much, Emma and Mon, for having me and Dante to dinner. Well, Rosh, we felt a little bit daunted by your choice of dinner <laughs> guest, uh, but we understand that he is a close, personal, imaginary friend of yours. And we were wondering, how did you first discover him? And what was your initial reaction to the Comedia? Oh, my goodness. Well, he is very daunting as an author, right? I mean, he basically founded the Italian language. Um, so I studied French and Italian at university. And Dante was the text that we, we had to earn the right to study. So you had to get through your first three years to get to final year. And if you got there, then you got to study Dante for the whole year. And um, I just, as soon as I read the opening lines of the Divine Comedy, which are, you know, in the middle of the journey of life, I found myself in a dark wood where the right path was obscured. I just fell in love with that sentiment and honesty about the fact that, you know, we all feel lost at times. And then it was just this, you know, epic poetry that unfolded and so many beautiful metaphors but ultimately it's a story of a man lost and heartbroken and in exile and I just it's so rich on so many levels and I just absolutely loved delving into it and spending a significant period of my life um studying it. So now this is going to sound funny coming from me because full disclosure if you're listening at home Rosh and I are very close, very old friends. But can you tell us a bit about how you and Dante got into business together? Uh Uh-huh. Well, Dante would probably be rolling in his grave of how I've commercialized his poetry into um, (laughs) objects on a website called Um, (laughs) Alighieri.com. But I, when I graduated, was similarly to Dante, very lost in my life. And I kept going back to his poetry and at the time you know I was working in fashion you know Monica Mon and I we met at our one of our very first jobs in the industry and I really saw this gap for jewelry and objects that really came from a place of story that were rooted in literature and the more I kept going back to Dante's poetry the more I felt as though it needed to be translated into these physical visual objects because his writing is so rich in metaphor and it's so visual and I just started you know I started making things in wax one piece for each one of his poems writing about them writing about each one and it kind of developed from there really organically and I didn't know where the path was going to lead me the the right my right right path was also obscured but I really have a lot to thank Dante for because it was that text and that journey that's kind of led me to find myself, I guess. Mm. Incredible. Do you have a favorite canticle? Oh, canticle. I mean, Inferno is just amazing. It's full of drama. It's where all the action is. Um, Purgatorio, you know, there's a bit more, there's still a lot of action, but there's something about it, the Inferno that is so carnal and um, difficult, I guess. Um, but it's where all the drama is. And, you know, it's where he tells the story of Paolo and Francesca, these two lovers in the fifth canto who are doomed to to be entwined together forever as a punishment for their sin of being in love, which is just some of the most beautiful um, poetry I've ever read. That is a very beautiful part. 
And it's interesting because he too was in love with someone who was not his wife, but because he never, you know, read Lancelot and Guinevere and acted on it. Although had he had the opportunity to read Lancelot and Guinevere with Beatrice and act on it, might he have? I mean, who's to say? But isn't that the thing about, you know, that kind of unrequited or um, unachieved love and the romantic nature of that? And I suppose the hunger that... um, you know, thinking about, I've been thinking a lot about food and the idea of appetite. And I suppose the appetite for something that you can't have is what in fact makes it what it is, I suppose, for Dante, I imagine, and for so many of us. It's true. One of the things that I was reading um, recently while researching for this piece was the notion of, I mean, certainly unrequited love formed the basis of like courtly poetry, which was... um, the most important kind of genre in, in Dante's time, or one of them, uh, these these odes and tributes to often mar- usually married women uh, at court who were never going to reciprocate the feelings. And certainly had they reciprocated the feelings, it would have proven them unworthy of the love in the first place. So, you know, unrequitedness was table stakes. Isn't that just like the 14th century version of playing hard to get? And not only does that make her cooler because she's like so unbelievably hard to get, but it also, and impossible to get actually, but it also confers nobility on him. So the thing that I read that I found crazy was that there was this notion that being a real gentleman was not only um, something that was a birthright. It was also something that you would earn through your behavior and that the primary way of being noble for a man was to have this gentleness of soul. So this ability to fall in love and write poetry about someone who was married to someone else was like one of the ultimate ways of showing that you are a noble, gentle soul. I love it. It's so brilliant. <laughs> These kind of codes of conduct, if only they still existed. Well, I mean, but don't they call that, isn't there a name for that now? Isn't it called like emotional cheating or something? Like it's, ah, people don't love that these days. <laughs> well, it's not very, no, not considered very noble. <laughs> right. I mean, our notions of what's noble, what's honorable have shifted so much. And we're going to get into that. We're going to get into kind of the nuances of evil or sin uh, a little bit later. But first love I wanted it. to ask Can't you. Can't wait. <laughs> you, you mentioned when you first started reading Inferno specifically, that the the idea of being lost was one that you identified with. Um, how how has your interpretation of the Commedia changed with time? Do you read it differently now than you did when you were a student? It's so interesting, you know, almost 10, God, I'm showing my age, 10 years later, going back to it. And, you know, there are still parts, the same parts that resonate me with me in different ways, you know. He was obsessed with numbers and symbol- number symbolism. So everything's written in terza rima. So threes, there are three, uh, there are three cantiche. Like it's all about that kind of trinity, but then reframing it. I mean, what he's doing is actually insane because he's writing himself into a Christ-like position, a God-like position saying, you know, we need to accept that we don't know all the truths, but he's writing as though he does have all the truths. So it's, this really interesting dichotomy between professing the fact that it's really important to be humble, but whilst doing that, also being the all-knowing source of the right path. So it's it's really interesting kind of tension. And also placing himself as the hero of his epic, which was considered, you know, like securing his place in history from the outset by saying this is not a poem about, you know, 
I don't know, Odysseus. This is a poem about Dante. Well, I suppose he didn't know that his uh, ip, that it was going to sell so well, but he took his chances anyway. I guess, but I mean, he might have had a hunch. And, you know, writing that, writing a piece of work like that whilst in exile without, you know, he wouldn't have had his books, his library, his, I mean, he would have had some touch points, but imagine holding all of that information in your in your head and writing that kind of just on the go is actually incredible it is because it's so dense with references to antiquity to like his he's extremely yeah. well versed in we think of the middle ages as being this kind of like dark period but in fact florence in dante's time was a real hotbed of culture wasn't it yeah absolutely commerce creativity writing painting um but yeah, he was very much, you know, a guy on the go. And I mean, to come back to your question, Emma, of how do I read it differently? I think I do in many ways. Um, You know, reading it now and reading the phrase, you know, halfway through my life, and you're thinking, well, actually, I'm the same age as he would have been, more or less. And you start to think, actually, where am I in my life? And that you know, Alighieri is nine years old now, and I'm quite superstitious as well, going back to Dante's threes and nines, and I start to look for different clues. And I, I start, I hope, I suppose when I read it as a 20, 22 year old, I was very much in the Selva Oscura. And I think now I read it and I think maybe I'm more kind of climbing the mountain of purgatory, finding my way, daylight has appeared. I'm not in that kind of depths of, you know, what am I doing with my life? Things have started to become a bit clearer, but alas, even in purgatory, you still have, there's still work to do and you're still figuring it out. So I feel very much like it's a, I'm following the journey in the hope to find the stars at some point as Dante did. The tension between mystery and knowledge and kind of this this idea that there is still something unknowable by humans and that that's part of humility to like recognize is so interesting that from Inferno, you're sort of meant to conclude that like, okay, suicides end up in hell for sure. And anyone who was pre-Christian also, but then in Purgatorio, you encounter a pagan person who committed suicide almost immediately, right? And so it's like, oh, never mind. No, there is some hope for, you know, and, and there are these kind of contradictions that continue to occur. Isn't there even, yes, in Paradiso even, there is a pagan. And it's like, yeah, okay, so we don't actually have it all figured out. Yeah, and I think you could read that in so many different ways. I mean, the first way you could read it is that Dante is just incredibly obnoxious and he makes the rules so that he can break the rules. And when you ask why, he says, well, it's not our place to ask because we're not supposed to know everything. Um, which is kind of an easy way out. And, you know, thinking about writing himself as the hero of his story, he also writes all of his enemies into hell. I mean, it's the ultimate burn book. Um, well, and some of his and some of his friends, though, is the weird part, right? Like the kind of implication that his teacher belongs there without any... From some of the lectures I've listened to, it sounds as if there wasn't really any evidence. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting. I suppose it's... He was trying to create order, I suppose, in a world of 
chaos. He was trying to create a system. Why he broke those rules, I mean, yeah, it's super interesting. And and we don't know. But you're right, I think, Emma, that's a really nice way of thinking about it. It's that kind of juxtaposition of, of mystery and knowledge. I'm not going to go too far into it, but we'll link to it in the show notes. There's a really interesting essay in The New Yorker recently by Jill Lepore. I love her. And she creates a filing cabinet metaphor for human knowledge. And she essentially talks about how like data would be the bottom drawer and the top drawer would be, you know, the mysteries of life. Uh, And there are all these drawers in between. And that currently we're very obsessed with the bottom drawer and we've sort of stopped placing as much value uh, on those top drawers. Um, And she, anyway, I'll link to the piece because she does a better job of explaining it than I do. But I I I found it really compelling. And I think he's good at like, you end up at the top drawer. Right. Well, okay. So a wise person once said something like, it's not where you're going, it's what you see along the way, or something like that. Um, And allegorically, the divine comedy represents the soul's journey towards God, correct? Um, But I'm pretty sure that on your personal Dante journey, uh, you have seen some other things along the way in, in a modern context. Can you tell us about some of those things? You know, I, I don't I don't know you to be a particularly religious person. Perhaps I'm wrong. No, I'm not religious. And, you know, I... What is it? What can, what can the modern reader learn? I think it's what you said, Mon, about that kind of the soul's journey. And, and no, I'm not religious at all. And, you know, I choose to read Dante's Divine Comedy on, in a non-religious way. And I think about it as, you know, it's about returning, finding God is finding yourself ultimately. Find, for him, it was finding God. But for me, it's been about finding yourself and I think you know there's this really beautiful um verse that he writes about the soul as this like angelica farfalla so this um angelic butterfly and the idea is that you know we're created as these light beings and the more we see and the more we do in life the more we're tainted and by societal kind of you know expectations of us or we get pulled between many different things but actually when we're born we are these light creatures and actually the aim of the whole journey it's a circle it's not a road he always says you know the the end is actually just the return home to the beginning and i like to read that as going back i think you know going back to that childlike innocence of seeing the world in a very pure way and finding that kind of curiosity and balance in the world I think, you know, if you look at the sinners, everything is everything that's punished is about extremes. So, you know, the um, usurers were punished, but also the avaricious were, were punished. Um, if you were gluttonous, you were punished. But also if you starved yourself, you were punished. So I think it's actually it's a text about um, balance at the end of the day. That's how I like to read it and finding that kind of but also that idea of being light and following your own your own path, I guess. Yeah, well, I mean, because this talk of sin, it actually kind of leads me on to my next question, which is related. So I'm just going to go right into it. Um, there is this way of reading Dante as a little moralizing or very moralizing. How do you reconcile his hardline stance on, you know, your own... With your own on paper sins, I mean, I don't mean to call you a sinner, but I'm sure I've committed a few with you over the years. I know I choose to. No, I mean we all are. We've probably committed loads of them, and probably loads of them with you. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I choose. 
I choose to read it for the poetry and not in a very, not in a dogmatic way. And I think, you know, for a 14th century reader, it was definitely written to be a dogmatic text. You know, it was almost like a blueprint for what you should and shouldn't do on a political level, on a religious level. Um, but for me, I like to, and I think that's also the beauty of as you grow older, you can kind of read something and take what you want from it. And for me, it's about the kind of emotion of how he writes, um, the beautiful metaphors, the idea ultimately of finding light in the midst of darkness um, and the idea that, you know, it's not that linear path. And what he did, which was so incredible, because this kind of blueprint of Inferno, Purgatorio, Paradiso existed in a very theological way. But what Dante did, which was unprecedented, was to put a face to each of those layers, each of those sins, put emotions behind it, put that dialogue behind it. And in that sense, I think he was very um, in touch with his emotions. And I think that's what I love about it, because there's an honesty about how things feel, which I think quite interestingly, we're still finding, we're still trying to find our our own way of doing in the modern world of being honest about how we feel you know saying I'm afraid when I'm afraid I mean the, the kind of word that's being used lately for that is vulnerability right like this notion that your life will be better if you make yourself vulnerable it's kind of it's become a kind of TED talk buzzword vulnerability hasn't it and that it's interesting because it's interesting that you should say that about it being kind of a blueprint because I have started to see it through the lens of a kind of self-help manual. The living can pay for a shorter time in purgatorio for the deceased. And I don't think nutritional yeast is the answer. But but this idea of like, keep working out your soul and you will be a better version of you. Like, I think that's a very compelling idea. And I think it kind of underpins a lot of what we talk about. Or even just like therapy culture as well. Like get get to know yourself really, yeah. your internal self. Which like, then. you know, it's true, I think. <laughs> I think so too. Yeah. And I think, you know, what I really take from it as well, that kind of journey of Inferno is you can't, he, he will not get to the shores of Mount Purgatory until he makes it all the way through the darkest, the darkest depths and the most terrifying places. And it's, for me, it's been that reminder of, you know, it's okay. It's not going to be, it, it, you have to go through the difficult things to get to the beautiful things. And I think, you know, that's what I've tried to celebrate with Alighieri and our jewelry and that idea of, you know, creating something broken um, with these kind of holes in to think places to let the light in. And that idea that like, you know, you've got to go through those rocky times in order to, we don't have to, but most of us often do. And that's okay. That's just part of it. Could you tell where my head was at when you found me? Me and you went to hell and back just to find peace. Man, I thought I had everything. I was lonely. Now I just want to talk about one more sort of thing I wanted to clarify about Dante himself. So sort of shades of gray here, because from a contemporary point of view, some of the life decisions that Dante makes, um, as far as we know, as in not even considering going back to Florence to be with his wife and children when he did have an opportunity to, but it would have put a stain on his honor. He could have been pardoned, but he refused to do so dishonorably. They, they, these decisions seem a little black and white. Is that to do with the distance of centuries? Was it just like a less subtle time? Are we just spoiled with our more fluid contemporary interpretations of right and wrong, honorable and dishonorable? Like, what do you think? I think, 
yeah, it's such a good question. You know, I think it's really hard to put our modern day values on a decision like that. I think that idea of honor and valor and nobility was so, so important back then. And I suppose, you know, he'd probably been, you know, he'd embarked on this quest. He's writing the Divine Comedy. He's in exile. He's made such a clear stance politically of what he was against, you know, the corruption of the church. And to go back dishonorably would have been almost to undo all of that hard work. And I think that idea of being really true to your principles was um, so much more important back then. But I suppose if you, yeah, I mean, if you put kind of that modern day value on it, you know, the idea of abandoning your wife and children is is not great. And it's something I think about a lot. Like, would I have actually liked him as a person, you know, someone who puts their political ideals um, ahead of his family, for instance? Um, It's a really, yeah, it's a really good question. And who famously is madly in love with someone he laid eyes on twice, you know, when he was married. (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah oh well that one for actually that one i can like if, that's not his fault no it's not his fault and it's beautiful it's divine love Emma. it's beautiful and it's the rules of three again she was nine and then she was 18 and she died tragically at 24 like i totally but just imagine if if i mean just try and like monica you for example colin firth <laughs> monica's like, like you just where, write like, lots of poems about colin firth or I don't know. I'm trying to think like who, which celebrity you would write a lot of poems about. No, no, no. I'm just trying to picture like, let's say there was someone about whom. Pro- I, I'm embarrassed to say it's probably more of a Hugh Grant situation. Okay. So you're just like <laughs> writing poems about Hugh Grant day in, day out. Like, what are your kids going to think about that? <laughs> well, I think Mia might understand one day. <laughs> okay. Well, he had a moment. Hugh Grant aside, Hugh Grant and I don't know that he's not he's deserving maybe... of any of this. Beatrice was much more worthy. <laughs> right. He may not be standing there at the gates of heaven. Well, we don't know. Well, was we she? She. We don't. We don't know much about her, and actually, he didn't know much about her. And I think that's probably what he liked about her. I mean, I mean, honestly, though, I really try not to put our kind of. If I were to put our modern day take on many of his actions and what he writes, I don't think I would be able to love the text as much. I kind of take it in the context of of what it, of when it was written. And for me, the beauty is that kind of that visual, you know, that that painting. Um, it's a Roselli painting, I think, of him meeting, bumping into Bea on the on the bridge Ponte Santa Trinita, which is where I went when I. I went to Florence and lived there for a year when I was 19. And, you know, I would spend all night on that bridge with the first person I was in love with. And, you know, like it, there's this magic to it, that history to it. And I think there's something so beautiful about that, that idea of that. And we all know that feeling of falling for someone that you can't quite have. And that idea of, you know, that yearning or maybe you know that first infatuation and I just think that that that, you know it reminds you that all those centuries ago ultimately everyone was just going through exactly the same things in many ways that idea of searching for your person for finding your political standpoint um you know standing up for your ideals and nothing much has changed in that regard and I think that's what I love about it it's just that kind of goes to the very core of the human condition I guess
Emma, true or false? One of the best things about parties, including imaginary ones, is playing dress up. True, true. True or false, our current clothing habits are one of the biggest contributors to climate change. Miserably true also. Which brings me back to our season three sponsor, Cezanne. Not only are their clothes so timelessly chic that you'll want to wear them over and over for decades, possibly centuries to come, but they are made well, both from a quality and from an environmental standpoint. Cezanne is a certified B Corp that sources organic textiles, ships in boxes that are either 100% recycled or sourced from sustainably managed forests, powers all of its stores with renewable energy, and has managed to reduce the carbon footprint of one garment by 17.2% over the last year. Plus, the clothes are dreamy for a Tuesday morning or for dinner with your dream guest. Visit Cezanne.com to stop browsing. Bon appetit. Well, I'm wondering in terms of menu, how contemporary we can get. Um, and also where this, uh, do you have any idea where this dinner should take place, Rosh? I think we have to do it in Florence. He's got to come back to Florence. It will literally be a homecoming. Okay, the stakes are high. Um, good. Very good. I the like it. The stakes are really high. Well, speaking of stakes, so... In terms of menu planning. Yeah, I think we have to do a Bistecca Fiorentina for sure. Yes, this is what I wrote down. So this is this. It's a cooking method that probably originated in Florence during this time. And it's essentially a thick cut of T-bone steak cooked over an open flame. Amazing. No metaphor here. And we would serve that. What do you think with like a nice piatto di verdure, seasonal vegetables with garlic and olive oil, Tuscan olive oil? Definitely. Spinaci. Tuscan olive oil. I think we should do a ribolita to start. So a ribolita is this kind of bean. Rush, we're on the same page. You have the same. It's not what he would have eaten. It was more of like a peasant dish, but it did originate in Florence during the 14th century, we think. And it was it was called ribolita. It means reboiled, right? And it was like the scraps of essentially people who worked in a house would take the scraps off the table, save them, right? And then boil them and make this delicious stew. Like the old bread, stale bread. And beans and vegetables. Yeah, um, which is one of my favorites. Absolutely. I think very simple, like, you know, in, in true Italian style, the ingredients kind of speak for themselves. Well, you spent some time in some nice houses. I often think of Dante in exile and what he would have eaten, you know. He must have been very hungry. Okay, so I did find some references to food and eating in the Commedia. The first one is absolutely at the beginning when he compares his hunger to that of a shipwrecked sailor um, in that dark wood. And so I think, you know, the Bisteca Florentina is definitely going to appeal to that gnawing infernal hunger. For sure. I think we need to offer him... He would have been used to these giant banquets. He came from a you know wealthy family. He would have been used to that kind of idea of this bountiful table. I'm just imagining a table that is covered with food that feels like this absolute feast of colors and meats and cold cuts and fruit and bread and just the all the colors. But we must be cautious. We must be cautious because in the fourth canto, as we know, Dante and Virgil encounter the souls of the gluttons. Yes, indeed. And these souls are forced to lie in a filthy slush and their punishment <laughs> is to be eternally pelted with a cold rain of hail, snow, and black rain mixed with filth, which essentially means that they forever live in Toronto in the month of March. <laughs> and that 
is no way to live. (laughs) And April. Um, That's amazing. I really enjoyed that. That is terrifying. It means we must restrain ourselves at at this banquet table. But weather permitting, can our banquet table be along the banks of the river, um, you know, outdoors, al fresco? Oh, what, what a wonderful city. What is our vibe of serving alcohol at this dinner? We need red wine. Oh, so much red wine. Yeah. Super yeah. Tuscans. He's a super Tuscan, right? We just have to remember not to be too gluttonous. And I was thinking I'd really love to make some Alighieri vessels for the dinner, like big wine decanters, giant vessels, and kind of do the whole homeware for the table, oh, if that's wow. okay. That would be incredible. Oh, that would be an honor. I have some Alighieri homeware on my dining room table and I get endless compliments about it. Oh, thank you, Mon. But I think, you know, candlelight for sure, wine, books everywhere. I think that, you know, between each course, I think maybe he would invite everyone to recite some poetry or we could read from the text. It would be amazing to have him read from the text. But maybe he just wants to chill. Maybe he doesn't want to have like a working press dinner. I think maybe he would just want more of a chilled vibe with with us. Well, maybe he would want to read some of his, <laughs> you know, some of his lesser known works. Maybe there's some other stuff that he was working on that he never got around Me. to publishing. Yeah. Yeah, maybe he, t- he took them to, to the Inferno and no one's seen them yet. <laughs> uh, before we move on to fashion, maybe a crostata di ricotta for dessert? A rustic tart made with ricotta cheese, honey yes, and please. almonds? Okay, good. I think that would be... Perfect, perfect. I'm super happy with that menu. I think he would approve. You. Okay, Mon, what are we wearing? Morals for spring. Groundbreaking. Okay, well, we have some great table visuals in place, but I feel like we need to figure out what we're going to wear because he's probably going to arrive soon. And, you know, it's there's, there's a lot to think about here. Once you know what the typical Dante iconography looks like it's actually very immediately recognizable so you know most depictions of Dante that red cloak yeah you know what I mean are realized based on one description actually of Dante which was um in his later years and it was by Giovanni Boccaccio in his Trattatello in Laude di Dante yeah I'm not sure I'm saying that right you did it which um henceforth after which pretty much fed um the iconography and I, it's a little unfortunate for Dante it's like if there was one photo taken of you your entire life yeah and then everyone else yeah. just remembered you that way for the rest and of history God and forbid, it imagine isn't a that particularly photo. flattering photo yeah and it was in profile yeah would, that would be my worst nightmare <laughs> exactly exactly so so let it totally same so let me read um the translation of some of it uh, our poet was thus of average height and advanced in his years, was somewhat stooped, solemn, and gentle in movement, and always dressed in garb suited to his mature years, the cloak. His, his face was long, his nose aquiline, his jaws strong with melancholic and pensive expression, which for some reason just kind of reminded me of like TMJ disorder, like jaw tension issues. 
Do you think, because we know that Rodin is obsessed with Dante and that the gates, you know, are, and Paolo and Francesca and so many of his gorgeous sculptures are inspired by, is the thinker meant to be Dante? And is he like working out the jaw tension with that fist? <laughs> or... Oh, maybe he's doing a kind of face massage. <laughs> oh God, yeah, that's what you're saying. I'm doing it right now. <laughs> like a gouache. Do you think, that, do you think Dante did like yeah. facials with a gouache? <laughs> I think Rodin did. <laughs> just like in the middle they of the would, woods like, hang out gua sha <laughs> washing exfoliating washing for eternity and there should be a circle of people who don't exfoliate which is me because I don't exfoliate nearly as often as I should and a circle for people who exfoliate with microbeads <laughs> improper exfoliation anyway the painter Raphael you may have heard of him added to the generally accepted portrait um, of Dante, uh, painting him with his laurel crown. And then, of course, the red robes again and his rather pointy nose and chin. Um, now, actually, Rosh, I was wondering, have you ever... I can't remember. I, I don't think you've ever made a crown of laurels for Alighieri, have you? Or have or headpieces? No, I haven't. We've been asked. We've been asked to do, <laughs> to do a crown. I humbly think we could make Dante's, like, classic look look really elegant with a little I mean albeit with a bit of like brush bronzer pre-exfoliation etc well I just I just remembered I really wanted to um just quote uh one other um Dante scholar uh the poet and literary critic Jacqueline Risset said of Dante it's as though the inferno wasn't really written as a book, but a country that he visited for a very long time. And it's true, adds historian Frank Ferrand, in the Dante episode of his brilliant radio classic show, um, Frank Ferrand Raconte, which everyone should listen to um, if you speak French. But he says, that, I am translating, that his pale olive skin tone and stern expression mm. may do make Dante look like he's literally been through hell. Like, <laughs> it's that thing of like, your skin is the first insight into your mental health. Um, maybe it's true. But I think we can spice it up. We can put on some makeup and then we can have... Uh, uh, an alligator if you'll indulge us maybe one alligator crown of laurels or like a headpiece you know that we could just I'd love that like an asymmetrical vibe so that we can do it but like do the classic but with a twist exactly do like an asymmetric laurel um that kind of wraps around I think that would be really lovely um yeah yeah And, and, and and I did see this really um flowing long poppy red cloak-like dress actually um available on the web on the website of our season three sponsors Cezanne shout out but I I love this idea of a sort of poppy colored red gown I think we could with the right pair of sandals um have a nice 13th century Florentine noble vibe I've been thinking about this quite a lot yeah. obviously because I'm if anyone who knows me, you know me, I'm quite a monochrome person and I yeah. don't think you would have ever seen me wear red ever, ever. No, um, no. So I was thinking I might do, I might do kind of like a white look. So kind of like Beatrice. white jeans, um, white, <laughs> like Bea, um, not to kind of, you know, make him fall in love with me or anything. But if that happens, that's also maybe okay. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, like, um, um, 
yeah, actually, maybe I don't want to start dressing like his ex-girlfriend at his homecoming dinner. Maybe. <laughs> well, not maybe even Maybe Dante is your soulmate, Rosh. <laughs> Rosh, you'll notice that Monica and I both are wearing white to this recording. Yeah. So, you know, you are not alone. But I was thinking, you know, I want to do white jeans, white silk shirt, and then like a little nod to Dante with this kind of a burgundy belt with a little Alighieri buckle. So just a tiny little nod to him in that sense. And 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 Emma, um, I was thinking that you could wear more of an ethereal dress because you look really great in those as also a nod to Bea. Um, she definitely got the better end of the aesthetic deal in terms of her depictions throughout history. She has been painted in many definitely. looks. Um, yeah. But always looks Poor good. Dante, he only got one look. He literally only got I one know, look. I know, one look. It's an iconic look nonetheless. It is, it is. It's a good look and I'm going to go for it. But she, she, she sort of, her facial expressions can range from serene to downright sassy, but they're always attractive. Um, and her beauty was, after all, otherworldly and heralded Christian salvation. But I actually came across <laughs> a blog uh, called The Italian Rêve. And I was very amused to see that there are other modern day fashionistas um, imagining what a modern day Beatrice would wear while oh, I need strolling. to see well, that. You know. We'll link to it in the notes. Oh, I haven't seen that. I really need to, I need to have a look at that. I'll send it to you. So anyway, the author of this blog um, said, I think quite rightly, that maybe a Cecile Benson balloon skirt and sleeve dress or a sim- similarly, nice. you know, Simone nice. Rocha or Rodarte number and then her hair in a sort of long, messy flowing braid and some comfortable flat shoes, or slingbacks or espadrilles. I think Emma would look great in this kind of look. Emma, what do you think? I love the sound of that. I think you'd kill that, Emma. Yeah. I'll yeah. wear an apron so I don't get ribolata all over it, but it sounds amazing. <laughs> okay, and then one last thing while we're still talking fashion. Um, Rosh, which Allegheny pieces do you think that each of us should wear? I mean, aside from my headpiece, like, you have such an amazing range of, of necklaces and bracelets and earrings available. But if you had to pick maybe one piece for each of us to wear in the presence of Dante, what do you think they would be? Oh, that's such a good question, Mon. Um, well, Emma, I think because you said you loved um, the story of the love between Paolo and Francesca, I think that maybe you should wear the Infernal Storm pearl earrings because they are inspired by the Bufera Infernale in which Paolo and Francesca find themselves. If you if you would oblige, I think they would look amazing with your Cecily Banson outfit as well. Excellent. Thank you. Oh Mon, such a difficult one. So you're going with the you're gonna do the red cloak and you're gonna have the the big headpiece. So we don't wanna be too crazy. I mean that's already quite a lot, yeah. <laughs> but then, you know, we wanna layer in. What what could you do? I mean, I think the Link of Wanderlust necklace would be really good because you've been wearing that a lot recently and it really suits you. And it's all about that idea of kind of um, adventure and embracing the ups and downs. Um, But it's also got a strength to it. So I feel like it could be a good piece for the evening. Also to balance out the more kind of feminine aspect of the headpiece. What do you think? I love it. I think it'll look so great with my robe. I'm wearing it right now. It has a lovely weight to it. It's sort of a reminder. It's like a talisman. And I really want you to wear this robe now. I'm going to source you one. <laughs> I'm going to make you no, a, dan- a dan- you, robe Cezanne. for our next They have meeting. one at Cezanne. Oh, of course. Sorry. They have one at Cezanne. <laughs> I've already ordered it. It's 
see my Instagram in a few weeks for, for more. Can we do a little shoot of kind of you in a Dante look and then Dante side by side? Well, yeah. Well, I was actually thought thinking I'd go to the Rodin Gardens in Paris to shoot it. Perfect. In front of the gates of hell. Amazing. Yeah. Abandon all hope, you who enter here and then me. Just <laughs> we abandoned it long ago, Monica. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think I would wear the lion, the lion medallion, um, which was the first piece. And it's to mark when Dante kind of is confronted by the lion in the first canto. And actually, the you know, these three beasts have this ferocious hunger. And the lion is so terrifying that even kind of the air around his mane is trembling with fear. And it's the point where Dante almost gives up, but and turns on his heel and says, you know, I can't do the journey. And that's when his guide appears, Virgil. So it's this kind of turning point where fear turns to courage. And I feel like this evening will hopefully be quite a turning point in his life as he comes back to Florence for the first time. And um, so, yeah, it would have to be the lion medallion for me. Well, it'll certainly be a turning point in ours. Thank you for being our Virgil, Rosh. Oh, hardly, hardly. I feel I've learned so much from from both of you and it's been so nice to talk about Dante in this in this way and thank you so much I really feel like this dinner party is happening now which is disappointing because it's a, just impossible that it can but <laughs> but in my mind I can really picture it well maybe we can go to Florence the three of us someday anyway sounds good to me thank you to our producers Matt Bentley Viney and Joel Grove And thank you for listening. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and send us an email at fanfarefanmail at gmail.com. See you next time. Bye.